Hello, Lion Cook Nation. This is Ray DeLucci with the Lion Cook Thoughts Podcast. On this episode, I get to interview Chef Jeremiah Tower. Chef Tower is one of the chefs who helped start the food ingredient revolution. He's also a big proponent of the farm-to-table movement that we hold dearly today. And why I feel Chef was so important to have on the podcast is a lot of my peers don't know who he is. Um, A lot of people do know who he is, obviously, but a lot of my peers don't. And I really wanted to educate them on someone who, you know, he was one of the chefs who started getting local produce and started getting fish from local fishermen in the Bay Area of San Francisco and California. And he has such a vital role in the farm to table movement. And like I said, a lot of my peers who love farm to table and love the movement, they really don't know who he is. And it's frustrating for me and the people who do know about him. And I really wanted to share who he was on the podcast. Um, In terms of importance, he is probably one of the biggest reasons why, you know, coming from Buffalo, I had a farmer's market where people wanted fresh produce from around the area. Um, in the podcast, I was shocked to learn that back in when he was coming up as a chef, California didn't have the great farmer's markets it has now. Um, that was his experience back then, at least. And to have him on the podcast and kind of walk through how his actions helped spark the way that people not only cooked food, but also viewed food and viewed cooks. Uh, to see his impact on the industry it was very inspiring and I think he was important to have on because you need to know where your where your food comes from and you also need to know why people cook the way they do and Jeremiah Tower was one of those chefs who people wanted to be he was one of the chefs that people wanted to meet with and cook for and really really just adopt his philosophies and we spent the first part of the podcast going over his career and I didn't want to spend the whole podcast doing that because there's a documentary on Netflix called the last magnificent, which is really well done. Um, it was created because Anthony Bourdain thought that Jeremiah tower is, you know, he, he admired Jeremiah tower and he says in the, in the documentary that we should know the heroes who changed the food industry. So if you want to learn more all about Jeremiah's career, you can go and watch it on Netflix it's called the last magnificent. Um, but we spent the first half talking about his career and the story. So if you know who he is, I think you'll find the stories interesting. If you don't know who he is, um, his first job ever was at Chez Panisse. He was the executive chef there. And that was his first restaurant job, his first job ever in his life. And you'll learn more about his childhood in the documentary. But basically, this was his first job. And he went into the kitchen and changed dining as we knew it. He did dynamic menus and he you know, source locally. And, you know, he talks about how it took three years to kind of get that sourcing done, but he sought out the best ingredients possible and he made it cool, I guess, which is not really a good word, but we'll use it. He made it cool to cook locally and realizing that, you know, not all the best produce comes from France. There's amazing produce in California around him and realizing that it's important to remember your heritage and where you come from and the farmers around you. It's important to have relationships with them. And, you know, there were chefs in that time, you know, Chez Panisse and with Wolfgang Puck and everyone else in that era, you know, they were starting this movement and Chef Tower was giving it his own style and his own finesse. And it was just very important to him to cook locally and to cook with the best you know, produce around him. And he did it, you know, he says, because he didn't know any other way it should be done. And it's very important because I went, you know, it was very important to me to talk to Chef Tower because I had this 
semester, this last semester in school, this last summer, and it was a farm to table course. And without a chef like him, you know, meeting all these vendors, where would we be? And I honestly question that. Where would the food industry be without a chef like him who not only, you know, he had the idea of farm to table, but then he gave it style and flair so that everyone wanted to do it. So if you're a chef who's really into like eating locally, I think this is a great episode for you to listen to. And on the back half of the podcast, we talk about Chef Tower's views on the modern day industry, and he gives a lot of great advice to cooks. He talks about, you know, just winging it and being confident in yourself. I mean, imagine the confidence he had walking into the kitchen of Chef Panisse and then becoming, you know, the most well-regarded chef in America at the time. And I can't stress that enough. He was everywhere at the time. His restaurant Stars was one of the top grossing restaurants of that decade. And he, he's just a very important figure that I really wanted to get out there for the rest of my peers who may not know who he is. And I was so honored to talk to him because, like I said, his way of cooking is what I believe in. And his way of kind of, you know, going after the ingredients around him allowed me to have the experience in California that I did. And if he didn't do that, I don't know what his impact, I don't know what the industry, how that would have been impacted if we didn't have a chef like Jeremiah Tower. So I'm very fortunate to have him on. So thank you, chef, so much for coming on. You know, we were talking through this podcast and there were, there were times where I was just like trying to take it all in because it was such great advice. And, you know, I was nervous talking to Chef Tower and he was just a great guest and I really loved giving the chance to talk to him. And I hope to have him on future podcasts because there's a bunch of topics I'd love to get his opinions on. There's a lot more things I love to talk about, but I was really nervous about it. But then I was really happy that we did it because he really gave sound advice and he was very... He cared. Like You can tell he cared about recording this episode. He cared about recording this podcast. And I just wanted to touch on the audio real quick. The audio quality, you know, it cuts out in a little bit in the beginning and then it cuts out a little halfway through and I jump in and kind of tell you where that part is. Uh, we recorded it via phone call and it was an international call. So that's why I got choppy in the first and like the, a little bit in the middle. But the rest of the audio is pretty clear so you can hear what he says. But I just wanted to give you that because I was aware of it and I didn't want you all thinking that. I didn't know that, um, but I really thought this conversation was important, so that's why I'm putting it out there. So, Chef Tower, thank you so much. Uh, it was such an honor to have you on, and I wish you the best of luck in finding a teaching job and being able to teach and impact even more young cooks like myself. And for the cooks out there, he says a lot of things that myself and I think a lot of you need to hear, and that's not to say it in a negative way, but a positive way. Uh, someone so successful and someone who sparked you know, the, a change in the way Americans eat as a whole country. Um, I think it's important to hear his advice, and I think hearing it will help a lot of cooks out right now. And like always, you know, listen on, listen to the podcast, share your thoughts on Instagram, and this is the community I want where high-profile chefs and cooks who are coming up can kind of meet and intersect and talk to each other, and I'm so grateful for Chef to come onto the podcast. And like I said, I really hope you all enjoyed this conversation, and Chef, I hope to have you on in the future. Thank you so much. You have such a big impact on my career that you don't even know along the lines of front of the table. And you've had such a big impact and impression on me just by talking through this conversation. Thank you so much, Long Cook Nation. I'm so glad to have you here on the podcast. And let's go. Hello? Hi, Ray. Jeremiah. Awesome. Uh, glad to have you on. Uh, thank thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be on the podcast with you. I mean, I know a lot of cooks know you, but for those who don't, if you just want to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you're doing now, and, you know, I got you have done in the past. So. Oh, boy. Oh. <laughs> 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 
We'll start simple and we'll get into it. Okay, I'm Jeremiah Tower. I started my career when I was 30 years old, and my first job in, in the culinary profession was my first job ever, and it was as the executive chef of Chez Panisse. They gave me the job. Okay. I walked in one day, and they said, cook lunch, and there I was in the kitchen all by myself, and I thought, okay, I don't really know what I'm doing, but, you know, let's wing it, and that's, that's how it mm -hmm. started. Awesome. Great. Well, we'll definitely get more into that, but I uh, just want to start out. Uh, where are you from? Where am I from? That's a very good question. I never know the answer because, uh, <laughs> you know, I grew up, uh, I left the United States when I was about three and we went to Australia and England and France. Uh, then I went to Boston and then ended up in California, which is when I first started working at Chez Panisse. So sort of everywhere. And why did you end up leaving the U.S.? My father uh, worked for, was the managing director of an international division of a big American corporation. So they sent him to places like Mexico and, and Argentina and Australia and England and so on. So we just followed him around. And, and that's, so what was food like for that? Like, were you experiencing all these different cultures? Like, did food have a large meaning for you? Oh, yes. I mean, the best thing, you, uh, best way to answer that is to tell people to look at that Tony Burdan documentary he made of me called The Last Magnificent, because it shows my growing up uh, traveling all over the world, but also in great hotels and great luxury ships like the Queen Mary and Queen Elizabeth, where the food was very grand. I mean, nothing to do with cruise ships today. I mean, these were like some of the best food in the world. Um, and that was my playground. So that's when I learned to, you know, love to eat and read menus. Awesome. And what is there like an important food memory that you hold today that kind of stuck with you throughout all the years? Oh, several. Uh, as a child, I think it was, you know, Baba Arum, because it was the only way I could get, you know, a cocktail in my dessert. And to this day, I still love Baba Rome, and I used to smother them with, you know, heavy English cream. Uh, those were wonderful. But then I, you know, awesome. memories of, you know, live trout being pulled out of a tank uh, in Champagne, blue trout. I mean, yeah, several memories. That's great. Um, and like through all those experiences, did that ever like, go into your cooking, I guess? the experiences you had as a kid traveling around? Oh, yes. I mean, as I say, my first day cooking was my first job ever. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, so then I just drew on all my memories of fabulous ingredients. Uh, not that there were any or oh, very many fabulous ingredients in California in 1972, but, you know, but I had a taste memory of all those fantastic experiences. So I just cooked to try and, you know, recreate that memory of, what the food tasted like, what great food tasted like. And so how did you go from, how did you get into cooking? Because for me, the, you know, the profession's very much like you have to pay your dues, what you have, but going in and becoming the executive chef and just starting to cook uh, is almost unheard of nowadays. So I guess, how did you like, even have the confidence to just go ahead and start doing it? Well, I mean, that I was the executive chef first day, shows you how desperate they were and how desperate I was. <laughs> if I'd known what it was like to be a chef, I would have run a mile. Um, but I yeah. was broke and I needed a job and that was the only one that I could find at the time. Really? As oh. far as having the confidence? Well, uh, as I say, you know, it's amazing what you can do 
if you wing it and you improvise and then you pretend that that's what you, you know, plan to do all along. So a certain amount of bravura, um, yeah, just do it with confidence and, and keep smiling and don't let them see you shaking in your boots. <laughs> that's good advice. And so before you started Shapenese, was there like moments where you ever thought, you know, I could probably be a chef or was it just that job opening that kind of sparked the moment where you're like, hey, I'm just going to go do this? Well, I mean, I was there in San Francisco and I was sleeping on the couch with some friends, my ex-roommate at, uh, at college. And he and his wife showed me this ad in the newspaper that was the Shapenese had put in there looking for a chef. And they said, why don't you do this? And I said, what are you fucking crazy? What do you mean? I, you know, what do you mean a chef? I mean, I used to cook a lot in, in school as a diversion. Uh, but, you know, I didn't think of my, I've never thought of myself as a professional cook. No. But it's amazing, okay. amazing what you can do when you have no money. Yes. That's definitely a motivator. Um, awesome. And what was it like, I mean, working in California? I got to visit California this past summer. Uh, it was my last semester of school. I spent 12 weeks there. And the the produce and just the the entire Napa Valley for me was so... Uh, eye-opening and just the amount of good food that was there everywhere like really blew me away so how was that how was it I guess working in California when that was your first job like well was it easier because there was all that food available or were you just overwhelmed well there was one farmer's market in all of California and it was in San Francisco and it was basically Filipino and Asian food so what I tell people now not that anyone believes me but it's absolutely true that everything that's available in Whole Foods today did not exist. There were no fresh herbs, no olive, I mean, very little good olive oil, uh, certainly no extra virgin olive oil, but no fresh herbs, none of the ingredients that you can, you you know, taking your cart around Whole Foods, none of that existed. So, so it was a, that's when the ingredient revolution, you know, started because, I just did everything I could to find, you know, fresh, local produce. And how did you do that? Like, did you just start making relationships with farmers or what was your Well, method? one day, uh, a guy came in the back door holding a huge salmon that he just caught. He was working on a, on a uh, you know, a fishing boat. And on the way back in from the, go- from the outside the Golden Gate, they're allowed to, the boat boys were allowed to keep whatever fish they caught on the way back. So he brought it to mm-hmm. me and I said to him, um, I mean, it was incredibly rare to find that fresh a fish in San Francisco in the Bay Area in those days. So um, I said, anything you catch in the Bay, you can bring to me and I will buy from you. And the next day he brought me a wolf eel, which I didn't even know what it was. I'd never seen one before, but I made bouillabaisse out of it. and It was fantastic. And then he spread the word. The word went out that the chef at Chapinese will buy anything if it's fresh, local, and interesting. Um, so the next thing I knew, there were a bunch of, you know, completely uh, drug-crazed hippies coming down from the hills, bringing me mushrooms, uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, and it went on like that. And then neighbors brought in uh, fresh herbs for me, and I would buy them dinner. So that's how it started. Then we started raising, I raised some geese in Sonoma because I wanted to make cassoulet. Well, there were no geese, so I had buy some, you know, goslings and raise them and then make confit and six months later make uh, cassoulet. Wow. 
it, it's it's so surprising to like hear. I, cause, did you realize how big of an impact your food would have when you were doing this? Because as you can see now, your what you started with California cuisine has impacted the industry entirely and the way we eat food. Like, did you realize that finding all this fresh ingredients was going to have such a big impact later in the road? Or did you just see it as something you did? There was no consciousness out of it at all. I was just trying to increase my salary from $400 a month to 500 <laughs> <laughs> And I wanted to fill the restaurant. It was, you know, we weren't making any money. And uh, I mean, it was, it was a local success, but nobody had heard of Chez Panisse in those days, except unless you lived in the Bay Area or lived in Berkeley. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I didn't really have, I mean... All I was doing was trying to make the food as wonderful as possible to fill the restaurant so I could make more money on my salary. But also, I didn't, I'd never cooked with anything except perfect ingredients, and so it was a big fight to find them. Okay. And after how long, like, when you started making these relationships with people bringing you stuff, about how long did that take? Like, a year, two years, when you started to get like reliable people every day or every week? From the salmon coming through the door, the back door at the kitchen, to um, a completely organized system of bringing, you know, wonderful products from all over the Bay Area. Uh, it was about three years, two to three okay. years. Wow. But also, I, you know, I used to buy in Chinatown and I alerted every, all the fish places in Chinatown what I needed. Um, I, with the help of, you know, the fabulous Daryl Cordy of Cordy Brothers in Sacramento, he told me where, you know, who to import things from. And I got an import company to start bringing things from Europe. So it, it took about three years. Okay. And after that, so what was like the inspiration for menus? I mean, obviously it was what you had on hand, but was there ever like a message or was there ever just a a theme for different menus or was it just I'm going to make the best thing possible with what I have? Yeah, just make the best possible thing. So that's why in, you know, I, to fill the restaurant and to keep ourselves amused, I mean, the menu changed every day. Um, so I started doing festivals of the regions of France and then I ran out of regions, you know, and also ran out of ingredients. So I thought, mm-hmm. why won't I just, I mean, I'm, I'm tired of trying to fit California into France. Um, so I thought, why don't I just celebrate the best stuff we can buy within 100 miles of Chez Panisse? So I wrote them all down. Yeah. There weren't that many. But by that time, there were people doing goat cheeses, and I could get you know fresh Monterey prawns uh, from down there. So I wrote what you know was called the California Regional Dinner in 1976. And that's what sort of changed everything because the menu was in English, the wines were in California, um, and it was just a celebration of all the local ingredients. And that caught the press's attention and that sort of was the beginning of the change. So 1976. Awesome. And are there, are there any uh, farmers or producers that stand out to you the most from when you were using them, using their products? Uh, well, no. I mean, there weren't. There were hardly any, apart from the wines. Uh, there were a couple of goat cheese companies. Laura Chanel goat cheese was, I think, the only one in those days. Um, mm-hmm. Otherwise, I was grabbing. You know, I mean, to get veal, I would go down into Oakland in the morning, which was pretty dangerous in those days. And mm-hmm. the animals, the calves, would be on the hooks coming in from the truck into the into the warehouse. 
and I would stand there with a bucket and grab the kidneys as they went by. <laughs> so it, well, it was it was foraging out of your you know driving all over the Bay Area trying to find anything that was fresh and wonderful. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, all right, so after Chez Panisse, you opened Stars. Is that correct? No, I uh, did a stint in Ventana in in Big Sur until uh, there was a big fire and we all had to run like hell. Then I did okay. the Balboa Cafe for a while, and but the next important one was a Santa Fe Barn Grill in Berkeley, which rekindled the American tradition of the bar and grill. So that's when salsas and drizzles and um, compound butters and everything and plain, perfect ingredients presented very, very simply with great salsas. That's when that started. And so... Um, the press was in, that was 1983, when a hundred okay. food journalists wrote about an event we did uh, from there. So that was the, the next big moment. And really? then Stars, okay. Stars was 1984. Oh, awesome. Uh, so tell me about Santa Fe and I guess the importance of the bar and grill and what that meant to America at the time. Well, I mean, I love to say about that event we did at the Aston Mansion in Newport that if it hadn't been for the French, California cuisine would never have been born because we showed up to cook our lunch for this big press event for the dinner. Um, and the French in the kitchen said, get away when, you know, you're just kids from California. Uh, you can't come in here. So I thought, right, I'll show you. And so we set up our kitchen right in front of the outdoor dining room that a hundred food journalists and they were, they, so they saw me cooking everything on charcoal grills, including the dessert. You know, there was four of us lined up tossing berries and syrup for a hot fruit compote, and we were tossing them mm -hmm. on the grills, the big saute pans. And that show just wowed them. So we, suddenly we went from nothing to, you know, 100 newspapers the next week saying how brilliant we were. We weren't brilliant. We weren't yeah. brilliant. We just, that's all we, you know, we were doing what we could do. That's awesome. I, I could only imagine what would it like if you had Instagram back then. Oh. <laughs> how that would have blew up. <laughs> Truly. Um, all right. So after that, then was stars, and I mean, I don't know much about stars. I mean, obviously, I know it was important, but if you could just kind of give more, I guess, insight into what it was you were doing at the time and what made it so unique and so profound uh, for the industry. Again, I can say, you know, look at that documentary, Last Magnificent, on Netflix, because in there, Tony Bourdain and Martha Stewart and Mario Batali and, and Ruth Reichel from Gourmet Magazine, everybody talk about stars as a game changer. It had, mm. you know, the... It wasn't the first open kitchen. It was simultaneous with Wolfgang Puck in uh, Los Angeles with an open kitchen. But it had a bar right as dominating the dining room. So the dining room on one side was this 50 foot long bar and on the other side was this enormous open kitchen. Um, so it was incredibly dynamic. And we changed the menu. Yeah. Every lunchtime was a new uh, menu and every dinner time was a new menu. So really? that was hard work, but you know, I didn't know any different. <laughs> so I just thought <laughs> old menus had to change every day. Well, and I, uh, I mean, I was doing some research and it was 
reported that Stars is one of the top grossing restaurants of the decade. Yeah. I mean, coming from someone who went into cooking, you know, because they were broke and just trying to find a job to having one of the most successful uh, restaurants at the time. How was that? Was it surreal for you or were you just like, all right, this is this is pretty cool. Like, what was your what was your experience with that? Well, after the 1983 event of the Santa Fe Bar and Grill, you know, I realized the power of the press. I knew then that to show off uh, for the press and for the customers, you know, meant a lot. It meant keeping the restaurant full. So Stars was, you know, in the Civic Center, which was all the ballet and opera and government and symphony and everything. So opening night, you know, all the stars would come into Stars um, and, and all the public would flock in to see them. I mean, you know, everyone from Hollywood and, and design and everyone was there. So, mm-hmm. I mean, um, you know, I think it was complete theater. I mean, one night when we were packed because it was an opening night for one of the performances, this streaker came through. A, home, a naked homeless streaker came flying through stars. And I just happened to be standing in the middle of the dining room. And as he came by, I stopped him. And, and I said to the, turned to the bartender and said, get this man a glass of champagne. Well, he was so, <laughs> he was so shocked he did stop. He didn't wait for the champagne, but by that time, everybody in the restaurant were on their feet cheering and clapping. So, you know, theater. <laughs> yeah. Those chance moments that turned into great success. And, you know, having a restaurant with such high profiles at the time, I think it was very smart to, you know, have them in and it kind of gave you that, I guess, power you needed to move food forward. And do you think, like that helped a lot, like people seeing like their favorite celebrities eating at your restaurant. Do you think that was a big part of why the cuisine evolved as a whole? No, because it was a mix. It wasn't just the celebrities brought the people, but the people, you know, were the ones that moved it forward. So we had, you know, I thought the bar was as important as the food. So we changed the cocktails you know, every couple of weeks. Uh, the wine program was innovative. The wine by the glass, I think, Stars was the first place to pour champagne by the glass in California. Um, you know, and the bar food was just as amazing. I mean, I, I bought, you know, 10 cases of Chateau Lafitte. And at the bar, you could have a hamburger and a glass of Chateau Lafitte. Well, it just, you know, made everybody crazy. And we made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. What were um, some dishes that you remember most fondly from Stars? Like, there's... Is there was any dishes that stuck out to you over the years that you did? Oh, I think the most astonishing was the three-pound lobsters that we uh, paraded around the dining room while they were alive and then cooked them in the wood oven and mm-hmm. split them open and served, you know, half. Uh, the We started the seafood service, you know, the tiered, three tiers of seafood service. That was very glamorous. Um I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say because the menu changed, you know, twice. A day. So I guess what, so what, how long did stars go for? And, you know, when did you kind of walk away from stars? It was, uh, it opened July 4th, 1984. And I sold it to a Chinese group uh, from out of Singapore in 1998. Okay. And what was the reason for that? Well, I've you know been cooking for uh, you know seven days a week for thirty five years. I figured it was time to go to the beach. Okay, yeah, I did read that, and I guess if you would like to just explain more on 
you know, your thoughts. So, so you just wanted to get out of cooking for a little bit, relax, kind of rebound from the high intensity? Or? Well, you know, I used to, I shook hands with 350 people a day uh, and smiled at them all. That's, that's hard work, let alone cooking and running a restaurant. Um, okay. So, yeah, I mean, I was, I was ready to take a break and do write books, do TV, something else. But the seven days a week, um, 18, 16, 18 hours a day, I, I was ready to, you know, sit on the beach and be able to go out and have dinner my, myself. I've been cooking dinner for, you know, we used to do 800 people a day, meals at Stars. So um, that's a lot of serving. And you get to the point where it'd be fun to be served yourself. Mm-hmm. Awesome. And I guess that, that's a conversation I kind of wanted to have with you was, you know, nowadays we see a lot of cooks getting burned out. Um, as mental health starts to become a bigger topic in the industry as a whole, or at least the thought, you know, that a lot of cooks go through, you know, either depression or they just have this feeling of they're stuck or they're lost. Like, what's your advice for maybe a cook who's feeling like that? Because a lot of cooks work, you know, these crazy hours and they're not really recognized. And not to say everyone's going to be recognized, but there's definitely cooks out there just wondering, like, what, what do I need to do to get out of this rut? So I guess what's your advice for them? Well, my first advice is that you can't be doing it because you want to be recognized. Of course, that's important and that can come later. But you should be recognizing yourself in the beginning because nobody else will, you know, except your immediate mm-hmm. boss. If you're doing a great job. I mean, I hired people with the right attitude. If somebody said to me, you know, I was a sous chef at so-and-so and I can do this and this and this, I'd say, okay, do it. You know, I mean, one of the, one of the Dominique Crane came into stars looking for a job and I talked to her and I realized she was some, this is long before anyone knew who she was. I thought she was pretty amazing. I said, you see that dish being done over there, but by one of the cooks, you step in and do it. And she did, she did it all night. And, that's, that's the kind of person you have to be in the beginning. Then you'll be recognized. But if you're looking okay. to be a TV chef or, you know, get your first BMW in the first six months of your job, forget it. It's not going to happen. <laughs> Definitely. And so with Instagram and social media, I mean, you highlighted earlier that it was very important kind of to use the media or I guess use like a brand to get your food out there to become successful. And I feel like a lot of chefs are doing that now. Um, so what are your thoughts on, you know, Instagram chefs or chefs who are, you know, showing everything on Instagram? Is there too much to show? Is there a time where it's, you know, it should kind of be reeled back in or do you think people are using social media as a way to really brand themselves and get their name out there? Well, I think a chef using uh, his or her social media, is much better than relying on Yelp. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Yeah. I mean, you know what you're doing. And if I have, you know, a a favorite restaurant where I'm living, I'd like to see them posting what they're planning to do, what they're doing tonight, what they're doing next week. And and they're doing a certain festival or they're, you know, they've decided to pour Chateau Lafitte with a hamburger. I mean, I like, I like to know that. And, mm-hmm. and as, as interesting and helpful as Yelp and Travelocity and all those are, those aren't industry people. I mean, not everyone's opinion is as worthwhile as some other people's, but certainly the chef, the owner of the restaurant, should be telling the public what they're doing and look at all the fabulous things that we're going to do. 
I love that. Awesome. Yeah, it's great. And it's great. For me, I always love seeing chefs put up kind of their thought process and creativity. I think that's something that, you know, we benefit from as an industry is to see why a chef is making a certain dish. Um, But for you, you know, you're regarded as one of the first, like, like, celebrity chefs. Obviously, you didn't get in it to be a celebrity chef, per se. You know, as you said, it was just like a job, but then you garnered a lot of fame for it. What was it like being new into that role? Because before, I mean, obviously, you had Chef Bocuse, who was, you know, regarded as the first well-known chef internationally. But it was kind of different with you and Chef Wolfgang Puck in terms of being recognized for your food and also your personalities and whatnot. So what was that role like? Well, or were you shocked by the interest? Yes, I was shocked because no one had ever, you know, paid attention to me before. But, you know, it wasn't my feeling about it was that I, well, to leap forward a bit, you know, throughout my career, I never read the positive reviews. I read only the negative. The positive ones I would post for the staff as a congratulations. The negative ones I would hold a meeting and say, okay, we've got to fix these problems. But I think if you if you pay attention to the acclaim and the fame, your head will explode. You know, nobody can withstand uh, that kind of attention. So I never paid much attention to it. It was always about the business, filling the restaurant, um, raising money for a new project, whatever. But if definitely, um, yeah. I mean, and now do you feel like? The, what, what's your like view on the role of a chef in today's industry? Um, do you feel as if the industry is still pushing forward with new creative ideas, and like what do you what are your thoughts on the way the industry is going right now? Well, I mean, the food revolution, you know, has worked very well. The, the ingredients are just everywhere, fantastic quality. Um, in fact, it's worked too well because so many chefs, young chefs think that if five ingredients are good, the 15 are, you know, three times better. Um, mm. But in fact, it's not that at all. Um, and also, when the this obsession with trying to get a Michelin star, or this obsession with, you know, imitating the latest look or trend, if that continues, uh, then the food is not going to move forward. I mean, can we get rid of dot, 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 and smear, smear, and all that stuff on a plate. I mean, come on, guys. The food <laughs> in, you know, Sydney, Hong Kong, New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all starting to look the same. Okay. And you, you want to see more diversity in new, newer I concepts. I think a so. great chef is one who, believe, who can find, take care of, and simply cook perfect ingredients. The ingredients are the okay. star, not the chef. Okay. That's that's important to hear. Thank you. Yep. Um, Go to Barcelona. Barcelona. Go to Barcelona and look at the markets and then eat in some of the local restaurants. That's okay. And it's so tra- like my goal if, over the next couple of years is to travel. Um, how important do you think it is to be traveling when you're a young cook and you're starting to build your foundation? Well, if you. Nothing is more important. If you don't travel, I mean, you're just looking at your own navel, you know, for your life. So you've got to see, Mm -hmm. you've got to have new tastes, new flavors, new smells. Um, You've got to travel. 
you've got to read books and you've got to travel. Otherwise, as I say, you're yeah. just staring at your own navel. Mm-hmm. And what are some books that uh, you would recommend or that stuck out to you? Well, I mean, I started by the, one of the best books still, even though it's an old book, is uh, Richard Olney, uh, his Simple French okay. Food. Simple French Food, it's the attitude there of how to cook and how to respect the ingredients, um, how to recognize perfect ingredients. That's a great book. Um, okay. Also, this, in the same spirit from way back then, are any of the books by Elizabeth David, that great English uh, food writer, you know, her Italian food, Mediterranean food, those, mm. her books were the textbooks for Chez Panisse and what made that food famous. Um, and then, of course, the, what influenced me were the Nouvelle Cuisine books from France, but um, I wouldn't pay much, that much attention to them now. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a cookbook from now, Ottolenghi in London, great, great books. So, uh, yeah, I, I actually have that. That one. It's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Is there any other cookbooks from today, I guess, that you look to or that you think have done really a really good job of kind of giving information out to cooks? I still think that simple French food is the best advice to any young chef okay. because it's the attitude and the passion. And if you have that, that attitude and the simple passion, um, well, not simple passion, but passion for simple ingredients, perfect ingredients, then you are on the road. Mm-hmm. In El Camino. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, and so, I guess, what did you, what did you uh, learn from owning a restaurant that was so successful? And what did you learn throughout your career that you could maybe share um, in terms of owning a restaurant and being able to manage people and being able to have people look want to come cook for you and work for you, how did you kind of gain that, and what what does that role mean to you? And like, what was your what did you gain the most from that experience from people wanting to come cook with you and be managed under you? Well, you know, in uh, a couple of months from now, Chefs World is doing an event in San Diego uh, with all the sort of stars, staff, and waiters and bartenders and cooks. I mean, it's going to be an amazing event, and they're all still want to, want to be there, so. That's a fine legacy, but um, I think one of the biggest successes for stars was that I used to take the staff, um, waiters, cooks, bartenders, with me on all the promotional things we did, like Meals on Wheels in New York. Um, You know, I used to take them to Paris and to Italy. I had uh, a villa in Italy that the staff could use during the summer to get to do be in a new place, a new culture, and taste the, per- the ingredients, the best ones of the area. So that they would come back completely pumped up with new ideas. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I would, I would take the, my chefs and sous chefs and a couple of line cooks you know, to an event in New York, and I'd take them to five or six of the best new hot restaurants and say, okay, what does this mean for us at Stars? When we get back, what is going to change? Okay. That excitement, you know, was fuel for for a very busy restaurant and keeping it successful. Awesome. Um, and I guess what uh, you know, why I started this is the highlight line cooks. Um, obviously, we're in a culture where 
the head chef is the person who gets all the recognition of whatnot, and like rightfully so. I mean, they lead the brigade. But what does it mean to have a solid line cook? Like, what's the importance of that to you? Because it seems like you really valued not only like your sous chef, but people who work for you to have new ideas and new experiences so they can be better cooks. Well, I mean, you know, there's no success without a great team. Team, I mean, nobody can run a restaurant. No one or two or three people can run a restaurant. It's the team. If you don't have that, um, then you're going to get exhausted and depressed and want to quit. <laughs> you're the chef yeah. and you don't have all this. As I say in the film, Stars was like a rowboat, you know, a lifeboat, and everybody in it was rowing together. No one had to say where we were going or what we were doing or how to do it. We all knew because, mm -hmm. um, and that's the main reason for the success of Stars. So I would say to the line cooks, you know, tonight we've got, uh, Ed come in at two o'clock and I'd say, here's a list of ingredients. You know, we've got some fantastic halibut. What do you want to do with it? With this list of ingredients? We'd talk about it and they'd try it and I'd say, okay, that's what you're doing. That's what you're cooking tonight. That's beautiful. Yeah, that's that's a beautiful way of of looking at restaurants because, but I, you know, a lot of times it's like what the chef wants, but you know, you have your guidelines, but it's cool to see that you kind of let creativity kind of blossom and happen in the kitchen. Yeah. I mean, I would stand there, we'd cook it together and taste it, make changes. That's one of the best things that Dominique Crenn says about when she started the star. She said, you know, we would be given this idea, we'd give them the ingredients and then we'd do it with Jeremiah, and then that was our dish. That's what we cooked. And that's still what she talks about today. Hmm. That's awesome to hear. And do you think, I, there's sometimes a feeling for me personally uh, that sometimes like it's taken too seriously. Like there's almost like the seriousness of the kitchen sometimes that's overwhelming. Like, and it seems like for you, like, you also realize that you have to try, do trial and error. And there's a, a lot of people who, I feel if it doesn't end up perfectly how they want it, they would freak out or they'd be severely disappointed. So I guess, how did you relate that to cooks that, you know, it's okay to try to do new things, don't get stuck in one spot in terms of creating dishes? Well, I'd tell them, come on, guys, it's only cooking. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Get rid of your tweezers and relax. I mean, yeah. at, one, at one point, I, that went too far, and somebody, a really great line cook, um, I wasn't there that night, and I found out the next day he'd made fettuccine with cherries. And I just thought, come on, guys. I mean, no, no, no. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah. That's not creative. That's just bullshit. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Hey, come on, guys. It's just cooking. And, you know, yes. and people are having, trying to have a, a great time. They're not trying to go to church. Yeah. I mean, the customers okay. don't want to go to church. They want to have a great dinner. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's important to hear because uh, what I do is I share thoughts of, you know, cooks and a lot of them, there's this overarching theme that they're, you know, they're more, everything needs to be perfect. And some cooks realize that, you know, it's not always about that, but some cooks, stri cooks strive for the perfection that you really cannot attain. So I think it's important to hear from someone who's been so successful, you know, it's just cooking. Like, it matters, but it's not the end of the world if it always doesn't work out. And I think that's where a lot of cooks suffer, you know, from, you know, being upset or going to dark places because it's just not working at the time and they don't know how to deal with that. And all, because it's not all about them. 
you know, I'm sitting mm-hmm. up in the dining room. It's the, the person who greets me can ruin the whole night. Uh, but it's the person who greets me. It's the waiter. It's the wine and the food, the cocktails, the ambiance, the everything. So come on, line cooks. You know, you do the best job you can. I was uh, I was doing a promotion recently in Palm Springs, and the chef was so nervous the first afternoon I could, I got there, and I took him aside and I said, "No, calm down. Uh, I'm going to teach you how to wing it." He said, "He said, well, <laughs> I wasn't quite sure about the fish that came in. I said, well, let's look at it, you know." And he <laughs> said, "I plan to do this and this and this with it." And I said, "Well, let's look at the fish, and then we'll decide what we're going to do." And Whatever we do is what we're telling the customers we intended to do all along. You know? So that's a, its own kind of perfection. You shouldn't be so fixated on one idea and because you're going to crash and burn. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you can cook almost anything you want. So relax and make it perfect by letting it be perfect, not forcing it. So there's almost a perfection in the process instead of a perfection in the final. Yes, yes. It's, it's not a photograph. It's a plate of food. Mm-hmm. Great. And so that leads me to a question. I'm actually, I'm just so you know, I'm really happy with how this is going so far because every topic we talk about leads into the next question, which is okay. It's been good. Um, but what are your thoughts on? Uh, you know, we you talked about uh, Michelin, and I know you've had James Beard awards. Um, and then you have now the world's you know best fifty list. Um, it's on awards now and the role they have in the industry. Well, I mean, you know, on Facebook, is there something every three weeks about you know the best restaurant in the world? I mean, that's really boring. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. who's deciding that? I mean, it, it's so commercial. Um, it's yeah. very useful. I love looking at them because then I look at all the menus from each of the restaurants, and that's fascinating and education and everything. But Come on, um, the best restaurant in the world, that is, has to be a very narrow field because, um, you know, the re- best restaurant doesn't have to have all the Michelin glamour. Best restaurant mm-hmm. could be, you know, a pizza joint in Tuscany. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't say in the world, but you know, in terms of what makes a great restaurant, it's not about the linen and the baccarat and all of that. And so when I was at a keynote speaker at the MAD conference three years ago, four years ago, um, there were two French chefs who had each had two Michelin stars who were giving them up. Okay. And let me tell you the story about Jean Trogro from the Trogro Brothers in Rouen. And it was 1974, something at Chez Panisse. And Jean Trogro was, came in the kitchen and said, I love this restaurant. And I was nearly fell on the floor. He was my hero. I said, mm. he said, I envy you. I said, really? That's absurd. You know, you're my hero. How could you possibly envy me? And he said, because you can do what, anything you want. I have three Michelin stars and my hands are tied. I can't do anything I want. Yeah. Well, still true today. Yeah, I never thought about it like that. Hmm. That's interesting. Wing it. Make, and so, I mean, yeah. wing it. Make your own style. Don't, yeah. don't, and to hell with Michelin. Yes, it might fill you up, but your hands are tied. Yeah, definitely. And then I think that's another issue with when cooks or chefs don't get those stars, it it breaks them. And like I feel like we kind of lose the fact that we're cook, trying to cook for the guests, you know? 
And for a long time, for me, I'll, like, I'll be honest, in culinary school, you hear about Michelin. Because I come from Buffalo, New right. York. I've never heard of a Michelin guide until I was 17. Right. Um, and so you hear about it, and all of a sudden, it's the thing you need to have going through school. But then I realized after a while that, you know, it isn't as important to me as, you know, what I'm happy doing and what food makes me, you know, what I find pride in. And it it really shouldn't be about getting the stars. And I feel like a lot of cooks still have that feeling that we need it, we need it. And I think it's good to be competitive, but to what cost, you know, does it have on cooks? You have to be competitive, of course, because you want to fill the restaurant. But every day you're the one cooking. You should, uh, you know, if a chef comes to me and said, how was the food? I feel like saying, well, you should know better than I did. You cooked it. (laughs) (laughs) Don't ask me. Tell me how good it was. Um, Yeah. I mean, to kill yourself over a guidebook, that's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, and a conversation I've been having with a couple of guests on the podcast is uh, smaller cities starting to get bigger food scenes. So, like, for me, being in Buffalo, uh, our food, the restaurants are starting to get more in-depth. They're starting to get more involved. There's a lot more, you know, not even fine dining, but different cultures and cuisines finding its way into a Rust Belt city, essentially. Um, what are your thoughts on American cities that are smaller, maybe like Buffalo, Pittsburgh, that are starting to get these food scenes that are really, you know, enjoyable and you can go out and find different things and some diversity in them. I think, you know, that that means that the food revolution has really worked. I mean, I, a couple of months ago, I was in Sacramento doing an event, and I was amazed at the, some of the restaurants and the quality and the uh, uh, really wonderful restaurants. Uh, and Sacramento, I mean, when I was in cooking in California, Sacramento was Cowtown, you know. Mm-hmm. Now it's a culinary town. Wonderful. Awesome. And do you see, uh, like, in the next 10 years, do you see uh, people going more towards the restaurants in the cities? Like, because right now, like, when I went through school, it's like, yeah, they had to work in New York or Chicago or California, per se, like San Francisco. But do you see it now more as you have to go work at this place and not necessarily the location? It's the place and not the city. Um, I mean, the, the individual restaurant, the talent that, you know, you're going to be inspired by um, their understanding of what makes a great restaurant. That's what you're learning from. It's who cares whether it's in New York or Los Angeles. Um, in fact, it's probably better it's not in New York or Los Angeles because then you can afford to live there while you're learning. <laughs> so I guess next, if, we, if you'd like to start talking about recording with Anthony Bourdain and kind of what that experience was like. You know, like I said, the podcast starting big inspiration for me, kind of a gateway into a lot of calls through food and same for a lot of people um, that look up to you and listen to this. So I guess you wanted to start recording with him and what it was, what it meant to you to be with him in that time. Well, when when Anthony Bourdain, when Tony suggested we do it, he wanted to make a film about me. I thought, really? I mean, that's the... I thought, I don't want anyone to make a film of me. I don't want to have to talk on film. But then uh, when I talked to him and the director, Lydia Tanalia from Zero Point Zero, who, makes, who made all those uh, shows of Tony's, I thought, well, yeah, I talked to her and we did an interview in San Francisco. Um, they sent it to CNN and CNN wanted to do it. So I thought, well, why not? You know, it took two years on and off. 
and was an amazing experience. The most amazing was seeing it for the first time. I'd never had anything to do with the content, but we were sitting at the Tribeca Film Festival for its premiere, and I had literally never seen anything of it. <clears throat> and it, it started, and I, I leaned, leaned over to Lydia, the director, and said, because it was dead silence for the first five minutes. I said, Lydia, we have to get out of here. They hate this fucking film. <laughs> and, and the woman behind me heard me say it, and she burst out laughing, and then the whole place started laughing and clapping. So, you know, that was a close one. Um, so, but it's been a big success. But Tony, let me tell you my favorite, one of my favorite stories. Well, my favorite story, I probably can't repeat here, or, or I will, and you can uh, cut it out. But we were going to see the Charlie Rose interview in the morning on CBS, and there were some picketers on the other side of the street picketing CBS. I mean, about 20 of these hard-bitten professional picketers making an incredible mm -hmm. amount of noise. And they saw him, and they all started chanting, hey, Tony, hey, Tony. And then he walked over and said, guys, could you be quiet for about 30 minutes? So we're doing an interview, and this is, you know, disruptive. And they said, oh, yeah, Tony. So they were quiet as mice. I mean, who in the world could get, you know, professional picketers in New York to shut up? Tony Fernand did. I just was really very cool. impressed with that. Because it shows that his reach, and this is a great advice to anyone opening a restaurant, his reach was from all levels of society, all incomes, all cultures, all levels of education, um, he was a success. And mm -hmm. that's what Stars was, and I think that's what also intrigued him to want to tell that story. Okay. You know, he was a, he was the greatest soundbite person ever. That's what it was like to yeah. be with Tony Burden. Hey, so we lost connection for half a minute uh, during the interview, and basically this conversation is why it's important to have the guests in mind throughout your career. Talked a lot about fame, the price of fame. Um, and that's what I'm, when we talked earlier, I was saying, you know, that you can't think it's all about you. You can't be doing it just for you. You can't want fame and TV just for you. It, because, you know, that, if anything goes wrong, uh, you go down the rabbit hole. Mm. So, after, you know, I mean, it must be amazing to be, you know, go out in front of 5,000 people in an opera house and get a 15-minute standing ovation. Fine. But it was also about the, mm -hmm. the whole production, not just about you. Um, you know, I used to v visit Pavarotti in his dressing room at the San Francisco Opera House during, during a performance when he was in his dressing room, and he was depressed. So I talked about that with Tony, the price of fame. And that's, I, he said, you know, part of the reason he wanted to make the movie was, you know, why did Jeremiah disappear? Why did Jeremiah give up the restaurant industry and go to the beach? So that's why Line Cooks, you're doing it for, your, for you know, the team and the restaurant and the public. It's not all about you, because if it is, you're going to run into trouble. Okay. No, that's a, I mean, that's a good lesson. And that's, it's good to hear you kind of walk through that. I feel like a lot of people need to hear that. So, um, yeah, but uh, so what cooking, what cooking techniques or what, like, 
you know, there's a big uh, movement with fermentation. Um, is Are you excited for that type of cooking, the more preserving side of it to come forward? Well, I've always loved sauerkraut, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and cheeses and everything. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, it's a fantastic. All of those things. I mean, when Nouvelle Cuisine came along, people, some people followed it slavishly and that was boring. But to take its best parts, molecular cooking, to follow that slavishly uh, is boring. But if you take the best parts, the most amusing parts from it, foam, you know, was a great thing. But when everyone did it, then it became boring because they weren't doing it as well as the person, the master who created it. So Mm -hmm. fermentation, yes, take everything you can from it, but don't make that your big message because it isn't one. Yeah, I mean, don't kind of be. A you, yeah, I mean, it'll become if you, if your menu is completely dominated by that. I mean, you know, how long can you do that? Before the customers want something mm-hmm. different. Okay, yeah, you're right. So I guess what is what's the balance then? Because a lot of cooks, a big part thing for them is paying respect to, you know, a lot of cooks. I'm sure paid respect to you through like how they cook, um, and you said you even have your heroes uh, in cooking. So where's the line between paying respect and homage and then kind of going forward and doing what you think would be cool? Or was that like, was that ever a thought? Or for you, was it just like, I'm going to do this and we'll see how it works out? Yeah, I mean, it's all trial and error, especially if you're try- changing the menu every day. Um, <clears throat> so I just would take all the best. I would read the book or look at the menu or go to the restaurant and think, oh, that was amazing. I can't wait to... And then you take that, you put it, in your brain, you roll it around and see what comes out. Okay. Um, and so, what are you up to now? Like, what are you, like, what, what is your role now? I mean, I see you speaking at conferences, and obviously, you're on here uh, in part to maybe educate younger cooks. Um, wait, what, where do you see yourself now in the industry? And, like, what do you want, what are you going to be doing in the next few years? Well, you know, I've always got the fantasy of opening a bar on a tropical beach someplace, you know, a bar and grill, mainly a bar with really? fabulous food. Um, I would, I'm working on finding a place to teach a culinary school or event or an organization. I think that would be great. Um, that would be awesome. Yeah. And I, and I love, you know, I'm going to Pebble Beach uh, Food and Wine Festival. I love doing that working with uh, some of the chefs who used to work for me and also new chefs. So it's, it's great. But I would love to teach. Uh, and why do you want to teach? Well, because I think um, as long as people are asking me questions, I can answer them. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And uh, what what would you want to like be teaching per se? Like just, you know, cause obviously like, I went to the CIA and we have different, I guess my question is, is there a certain cuisine you want to be teaching? Would you be want to teaching more of a uh, base fundamentals class? Like what would you want to kind of teach? I want to teach winging it. In other words, you've got a whole walk-in full or ingredient in front of you. Um, let them build the menu. You know, there are two basic approaches to making a menu to cooking one you have this idea and then you go out and try and find the ingredients um 
the most extreme case was back when I started Chez Panisse. I didn't use foie gras because the only foie gras came in a can and it was, you know, tasted like uh, Arm and Hammer or something or other, you know. It's pretty hell. <laughs> so and we didn't use it. We couldn't afford it. We didn't use it. So if you have a fixed idea of what you want to cook and then you have to go find the ingredients and make them, you know, you force them into that, what you want to do. That's one way of doing it. That was the way of the old, you know, fancy French restaurants uh, in America. The other one is you go to the market, you walk up and down the Santa, Mo Santa Monica Sunday farmer's market and you see things and the menu starts, the dish and the menu starts operating in your head. So I'd like to, that is a skill. I mean, one of my favorite things at Stars was to go into the walk-in in the morning and uh, create the lunch menu for the, for the cafe with what the things that were left okay. over. That, that's a skill. But it's the ingredients that are the most important thing. They always have been and they always will be. And they're the ones that teach you. Okay. I, I'll be honest with you. I, that's a skill that I feel like I need to grow, work on. Um, there's plenty of times where my chefs ask me, like, you know, go cook something. And for me, like, how I work is I have to, like, sit down and, like, really think about it. And I don't really have that skill to go in yet. And, you know, I, I have an idea of what I want to do. But, like, it's almost like the dish is half there. And it's not fully there. It's, like, right. the missing piece of the puzzle. So, I guess, how did you develop that? Because for me, there's always, like, this last thing, like, in my mind when I'm trying to create a dish. And it's just, like, I don't know if it's because of lack of experience so far or lack of just you know, knowing all the cultures, but I don't feel like I can fully visualize something unless I sit down and really think about it. So how did you kind of develop that muscle of just being able to do that? Well, by learning that the, that last thing that you think you, you know, you need is the one that you should discard. You know, okay. when I'm making sauces and I would watch myself, you know, like I was in a trance, I'd watch myself adding something to it and I'm thinking to myself, part of my brain is saying, add this because you have to do more. And the other part of my brain saying, stop, stop, stop. You don't need to do that. And, you know, those are the mistakes you make. But you always mm -hmm. have to remember that if you're in uh, Germany right now in the white asparagus season, they're beautiful, thick white asparagus. People know how to peel them. It takes you about a year in training before they even, you know, allow you to be the main don't don't hmm. laugh. It's one of the most important steps in a perfect white asparagus is peeling it because you start deep, deep at the stem and end up on the surface towards the tip. I mean, it's a real skill. And that's yes. how their texture is perfect. And then they just pour a perfect hollandaise over it or a vinaigrette. And, you know, that's one of the best. That's a dish that will stick in your memory. So when you're thinking, what should I do? Uh, should I add that thing and that thing? You remember the best dishes you've ever had and how simple uh, they were. That's your okay. inspiration. Awesome. Yeah, I never, thank you. And I never thought about it like that. And I'm sure a lot of cooks listening right now will be like, wow, you know, it puts it into perspective. So, um, yeah, I, I just have a few questions left, I guess, okay. or, that we could talk about. But um, the biggest one that I wanted to get out of you. I mean, you've given a lot of advice in this episode, so thank you for that. Um, you know, with winging it, but I guess if there's any other advice you could give to a young cook out there that's just starting out and they're nervous and they're like, you know, what am I going to 
what's my impact going to be in the industry? Where am I going to fit in? What is your advice for them? Well, first of all, when you've got, I, as I said, let me repeat that I would hire people with the right attitude. Um, someone would come and say, I'm fantastic. And I would say, see that 10 boxes of tomatoes over there? I want them peeled and seeded and chopped up. Um, and, you know, I'll show you the first five tomatoes and then I want to see them all done. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. if they can do that, I'd hire them, you know, because they have the right attitude. But my other piece of advice is, you know, no one shift is going to kill you and none of them are. So relax, listen, observe, forget yourself for a year or something, you know, it's not all about you. It's about everything else going on around you. So listen, observe, taste, and learn. And that is the way uh, to get your career jump-started and in full swing. Okay. Um, my uh, second to last question is, what, is, what fascinates you about the beach? That's a theme that keeps reoccurring. Uh, what draws you to the beach? To the beach? Well, it's, the beach is just the uh, edge of the uh, Caribbean warm waters uh, because I'm really about underwater, not so much the beach, uh, scuba diving. diving. Scuba diving with sharks is a perfect antidote to running the restaurant business, in the restaurant business. Okay. Because, you know, your adrenaline level is so enormous when your least mine was uh, in the restaurant business. Um, if you stop, you know, the adrenaline you, will kill you. So the best thing for me was to go learn to scuba dive and with the, the incredible quiet and calm of being underwater and seeing all those animals. And then the occasional shark kept your, kept your adrenaline level up where it should be. Well, try scuba diving is my advice. Okay. Yeah, definitely have to look into that. Um, never been, but... Now that you say it like that, definitely makes sense as to why you would do that. So, all right. And uh, my last question, I guess, or, or last point of talking is, what does it mean uh, for you to be part of the Lion Click Nation? Um, Lion Click Nation is uh, what I kind of created to, I guess, call this community of cooks trying to relate and progress the industry in an honest and respectful way. So what does it mean to have contributed in some way to that, I guess, thought or movement that we're trying to get behind? I think it's an enormous privilege to be part of that community because, you know, I never want to leave it. Uh, And Mm -hmm. also I can continue to learn and be inspired by the community. So uh, I think it's a privilege to be part of it and and do what I can for it. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it means a lot. And like I said before uh, starting this, you know, I just, I created this because, you know, as we talk about stress and adrenaline and, Cooks, I think it's important at the end of the day to know that it's not just you that feels right. this way. There's other cooks who care so much about food. And there's almost like a, a good feeling that, you know, there's other people out there pushing. So, and it'll be okay. So, it definitely has been an honor to have you on. Thank it's you. been an honor to, Thank you, you know, talk to you and just learn from you. Um, I really wish I was around when Stars was uh, in its full effect. I would have loved to come eat there. Uh, but, <laughs> yeah, I... I I'm kind of jealous of that what? or resentful of that. But, Watch yeah. the movie. That tells, it shows it all very, very well. Okay. Awesome. I will. Okay. Thank you. All right. Okay. Thanks a lot. Yes. I'll, um, Thank you. 
I want to give you a call real quick just to finish up and give you some details. Right. Um, but I'm just going to end the recording right now. Right. Thank you. And so there we have it, the interview with Chef Jeremiah Tower. Once again, Chef, thank you so much for coming on. Line Coat Nation, thank you so much for listening. And I hope you really took a lot away from this interview. Um, I have a lot of exciting guests coming up. Uh, I have Chef Zabrowski. He is a uh, pastry arts instructor at the Culinary Institute of America. He's going to be next week. And then after that, Michael Carroll. He's the co-founder of Bando Bohemia in Chicago, the first Michelin-starred brew pub. And I have really great conversations with them as well. So I'm excited to release those out. And I'm going to be honest, I've been doing a lot of work with podcasting and I have a lot of interviews in the works or at least coming up. And just so you know, for scheduling in April, I might do two podcasts in one week just because I'm starting to get a lot more interest in people being on the podcast. I'm getting a lot of people I want to talk to and I don't see the point in when I can do eight podcasts a month instead of four, why I should wait. Um, If it gets to be too much, (laughs) you know, obviously take your time listening to them, but I really have a lot of great conversations that I want to have with a lot of cooks out there. And if I can do double the amount of podcasts like I was doing when I first started this, uh, I think it'd be great. And I know I can, and I just think it's time maybe to start going back to two per week. If we go back to one per week after going for two, I just know that's happening, but the schedule's still going to be one per week on Sunday. And if you get an extra one in the middle of the week, that's not because it was you know, less of a conversation in my eyes. It was more just because I have the content to put out and I think you should hear it. Um, So yeah, I'm very excited for what's about to happen with the podcast. A lot of special guests coming up. A lot more interest is happening and I'm just very excited for where Line Cook Thoughts is going. And yeah, don't forget to check out linecookthoughts.com to get some official merchandise for the Line Cook Nation movement. And thank you so much once again to Chef Tower You'll be getting a hat, as with every guest, I've sent some sort of merchandise. And, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening.